a British psychologist named Richard Wiseman, a professor at University of Hertfordshire, created a Laugh Lab, a website where people could submit jokes and rate them. In 2002, he published a scientifically proven the world's funniest joke, which received the largest vote from different countries and a wide, wide audience. So you want to hear the world's funniest joke? All right, here you go. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went camping. At the end of the day, they pitched a tent and had a campfire. After dinner, they went to sleep. In the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes nudged Dr. Watson. Watson, wake up. Look up at the stars. Tell me what you see. With a sleepy voice, Watson said, I see many stars. And Holmes asked again, what do you deduce from what you see? Watson replied, well, astronomically, I see millions of galaxies. That means there are billions of stars. Statistically speaking, there might be another planet like Earth somewhere. Theologically speaking, God is powerful. We are so little. Meteorologically speaking, the sky is clear. We'll have a gorgeous day tomorrow. What do you see, Sherlock? After silence, Holmes said, Watson, you idiot. Somebody stolen our tent. <laughs> the moral of the joke is a missing point. Watson saw the stars, but he missed his tent gone. Today, we will read a story about a very religiously serious people who missed the point. What they missed misled them to mess up big time. We also can make a mess if we miss the main point of our life. Now, let us read our text together responsively. Luke chapter 6, verse 1 to 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, grain field, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat their kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companion were hungry? He entered the house of God. And taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then the Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and the man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he could heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? He looked around at them all and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so. His hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Flowers fall, but the words of God last forever. 
topic of today's text is worship, particularly about how to observe Sabbath. Twice in verse 1 and 6, Luke studied two stories with the Sabbath, one Sabbath and on another Sabbath. Luke described that Jesus repeated debating and clashing with the Pharisees about how to celebrate the day of the rest in the most God-honoring way. So what is a Sabbath? Along with the circumcision, Sabbath was the hallmark of a Jewish identity. If a circumcision was a one-time physical mark of being a God's people, especially for Jewish men, Sabbath was an ongoing, repeating, spiritual mark of being God's people. According to the Bible, Sabbath was actually older than circumcision. Sabbath was the conclusion of God's seven days creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So if you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, by seventh day, God has finished the work he has been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Every day is God's blessing, but the seventh day is God's special blessing of rest. And the rest in Hebrew means Sabbath, from which we have a Sabbath. According to renowned American Jewish rabbi and biblical theologian named Abraham Herschel, Sabbath is not just a casual day of rest but climax of a living, climax of a living. So listen to this. The Sabbath is not for the sake of weekdays. The weekdays are for the sake of a Sabbath. It is not the interlude, but the climax of a living. Strict adherence to the laws regulating Sabbath observance does not suffice. The goal of a week is creating Sabbath as a foretaste of a paradise. The goal of a weekly life is a creating Sabbath, a foretaste of a paradise. I can't agree anymore with Herschel's view of a Sabbath as a foretaste of a paradise. I believe this high view of a Sabbath was actually promised that God fulfilled in Christ and now offers to all of us. Today, I want us to learn how to celebrate the Sabbath in the surest and the sweetest way, the way that God intended. When we worship God on Sabbath in the way that Jesus showed us today, we will foretaste heaven. And our earthly journey will be powerful and fruitful. And I pray that every Sunday of 2022 will be foretaste of a paradise for each and every one of us, and all of us. Amen? For that, we're going to learn three things about Sabbath in today's passage. So let me give you three outlines. First is uh, assumption. Second, attention. Third, action. So assumption, attention, and action. First about assumption. Pharisees assumed they were absolutely right about how to observe Sabbath. Look at the first one. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, and his disciples began to pick some heads of a grain, rub them in their hands, and they eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? 
So Pharisees assumed that they were right, and Jesus and disciples were wrong on Sabbath practice here. Before we jump on to the legalism of Pharisees about Sabbath, we first must understand where their legalistic assumption and attitude came from. If you look at the history of Israel in Old Testament, they experienced the death of a nation, their nation, which was the Babylonian exile in the 6th century before Christ. One of the major reasons they lost their country to Babylon was their failure to observe Sabbath holy. So, for instance, if you look at the, uh, uh, Jeremiah 17.23, it says, But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any load as you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Jeremiah is talking about people transporting goods and uh, doing a transaction of a business as a usual on Sabbath day. If you don't, you know, keep a Sabbath holy, on, uh, uh, Sabbath holy, God said, I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will cons- consume her fortresses. As Gail 20 and Isaiah 58 and many of the prophetic books pointed out that Israel failed to pagan nation because they failed to worship God properly on Sabbath. So their casual take on Sabbath cost them terribly. The Israel's casual take on Sabbath cost them terribly. So when Israel returned to their homeland from Babylonian exile by God's you know, mercy, they tried to make a Sabbath observance the focal point of their law-keeping. So Sabbath became a center of their law. This Jewish repentance and observance for Sabbath became an obsessive reaction a few centuries later that they were paranoid about Sabbath. So for instance, according to Josephus' you know, writing, when Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the infamous Syrian king, attacked Jerusalem in the uh, 168 before Christ. He attacked Jerusalem on Sabbath. And the hundreds of Israel soldiers and men refused to take arms in their fear of breaking Sabbath regulation, and they chose a death or martyrdom for the law of a Sabbath. You know, by the way, even 20th century, Many Arabs' military aggression to Israel, such as the Yom Kippur War in the 1973, took place on Sabbath. Because everybody knew how paranoid Jewish people are about the Sabbath. I have a friend in the Bay Area. He's a software engineer who worked one time with an Israeli company. And he told me how meticulously some of his Jewish co-workers were keeping the Sabbath. One of them designed a software that suspend the elevator and escalator of his uh, apartment complex during Sabbath. So if you Google about uh, the Jewish meticulous observance of a Sabbath, you will find some amusing stories. Now, God did not tell Moses and Israel the details about how to keep Sabbath holy. So during the intertestamental period, which is about 400 years between Old Testament and New Testament, Jewish people made a commentary on the law 
is called a Mishnah, in which they prescribe 39 areas and activities of a don't on Sabbath, among which harvesting on Sabbath was prohibited. That's what Pharisees today accuse Jesus and his disciples. To be clear, disciples of Jesus did not break any law, but they kind of went against the Jewish tradition of a Mishnah or the interpretation of the Sabbath. Actually, according to the law of Moses, such as Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 19 and uh, 23, the poor and foreign migrants were allowed to eat off the uh, unharvested leftover grains. So here, we see a mutation of a God's truth into human tradition. Pharisees, they received, inherited Jewish paranoia about Sabbath and remade Jewish tradition into their pride and now prejudice against others. Their interpretation of Sabbath changed from assumption to accusation in today's story. As one biblical scholar notes, Sabbath observance became, quote, boundary-keeping mechanism, boundary-keeping mechanism instead of reflecting on God's gracious creation and faithful covenant with his people. So notice an important fact. Fear-driven Sabbath let the Pharisees fear-causing, pride-boasting spirituality. Someone said, we don't see things as they are, but we see, we see things as we are, as we are. The way we see things actually reflect our subjective reality more than objective reality there. You know, God's gracious call for rest and reflection became a religious weapon for pride people. What was their problem? Listen to me carefully. They love God's law, not for God or with God's heart, but for themselves, for their own pride. This is a classic symptom of a religious fundamentalist. Religious fundamentalists always take a certain truth of God and transmute it into absolute tradition of a, their man-made tradition and condemn and judge others. They convert the God's truth into their convenient use to boost their egos and then bully others. I've seen religious fundamentalists in the church, in the Christian institution, in the seminary, everywhere. In our nation right now, is suffering because of a Christian fundamentalist. Now, Isaac Asimov is the, uh, uh, some of you know, is a Jewish, you know, science, you know science, science fiction writer. And he said this, your assumptions are your windows on the world and scrub them off, uh, scrub them off every once in a while or light one come in. We are full of assumptions without verifying or checking our interior will be dark. Now, Good intention and strict observation of a principle is not enough. We need a God's help to scrub the windows of our souls and minds. And God's help is a Jesus Christ, the living word of God, the truth. So let's see how Jesus answered them. Now we're going to the second part. In verse 3, Jesus answered them, Have you never read 
what David did when he and his companions were hungry and he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Jesus' answer to accusation of a Pharisee was a rhetorical and a reflective question. And the, that question was based on the story of David, the Israel's most beloved king. In 1 Kings chapter 21, David and his men were fleeing from King Saul, went into the house of God. They were starving and asked for the food, and the only available food was a consecrated bread. This holy bread was also called the bread of a presence because it has 12 loaves and 12 loaves representing 12 tribes of Israel. And this loaf was presented or replaced every Sabbath. This weekly presentation of a bread of a presence actually symbolizes that God is a sustainer and a provider of Israel's life. And that when David appropriated this holy bread, even though he's not a priest, you know what David said? If you look at the first Samuel 20, chapter 21, verse 5, David said, The man's body are holy, even though our mission is not holy. There, David saying, this bread is a holy, but human body is also holy, or even more holier. With this story, Jesus was rhetorically and reflectively asking Pharisees, if a David could give a holy bread to his men, how much more true son of David, actually son of God, could give a food to his men? Here, Jesus is using what called the rabbinic hermeneutical principle from lesser to greater. So it functions in two levels. First, the bread versus the David. Bread is a lower, and David is definitely higher, right? And then David and the Jesus. David is a messianic type, and the Jesus is Messiah himself. So if a Torah regulation could be overcome by David, how much more could it happen with the Jesus, God's son and Messiah? Note Jesus' point. By strict interpretation of the law, David broke an important law regulation, yet he was never criticized, for he was a future king and prototype of a Messiah. If that's true, how much more is it the case with the Messiah himself? So Jesus saying that I'm free of all guilt. And then Jesus gave his final answer, which was an incredibly bold statement, and you should wake up and listen. Then Jesus said to them, verse 5, Son of man is what? The Lord of a Sabbath. Son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. By the way, Son of man is a messianic title that Daniel prophesied in the book of Daniel. You know, I'm a son of man, but I'm just a son of man. Jesus is the Son of man. That's why it's written in the capital letter. Here, Jesus was calling attention of the Pharisees and everyone to himself. When Jesus said, the Son of Man is the Lord of Sabbath, you know what Jesus is saying? I am the Messiah, and the Sabbath belongs to me. Last week, we heard from Jesus' homecoming sermon and the first sermon in Luke's Gospel that Jesus is the Jubilee. Now Jesus claimed to be Lord of Sabbath. Once again, no Jewish prophet, rabbi, or leader ever made a similar claim to this proportion. Jesus self-proclaimed to be the center of a Sabbath. 
you have to really know this incredible, bold, unprecedented statement. Jesus said, I am the main point of our Sabbath that you must not miss, but pay full at attention to me because I'm the one who made a Sabbath and know all about Sabbath. I am the meaning of a Sabbath. That's what Jesus is saying. According to Jesus, main blessing of a Sabbath is himself. He's a personal center of a Sabbath. And much more, Jesus offered himself as a true Sabbath. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28, what did Jesus say? Come to me all who are you know, a, a weary and he heavy burden. I'll give you what? I'll give you rest. I'll give you Sabbath. Do you feel restless from time to time? Do you wonder where your restfulness comes from? You know, St. Augustine wrote this incredible book called The Confession. It is a masterpiece in the world literature because it's the first psychological autobiography. In there, St. Augustine wondered about why, why humans are souls, you know, my heart and everyone's heart is restless. And then he confessed, why? He said, human heart is a busting with the reality of God. Human longing is infinite, insatiable, and thus restless. There's nothing in this world can satisfy my longing. And then Augustine finally discovered this truth. I am infinitely, insatiably restless because God made me. He said, Lord, you made me for yourself. That's why my heart is restless until they find the rest in you. God made us in his image. No one can feel that image in us other than God. Now, uh, American, you know, devotional writer, Shelley Miller, made a very uh, 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 fitting statement on this. She says, Sabbath is not about resting perfectly. It's about resting in the one who is perfect. I love this statement. She is absolutely right. Sabbath is not just taking a break from work. Real rest comes from our devoted fellowship with our Creator and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. You know, when I give my undivided, desperate attention to Jesus on Sunday worship and receive His affection and attention for me back, that's when I feel rested. That's when I feel rejuvenated, and there I fear no more, but feel energized and recharged to live again for God. But unfortunately, you know, many of us take a Sunday, our Sabbath, very passively and ritualistically at best. So listen to this comment, you know, observation or, you know, analysis of a well-known Anglican bishop and a pastor named Ray Otland. He said this. The very concept of a weekend is unbiblical. It turns Sunday into a second Saturday. It turns Sunday into a second Saturday. Home Depot may, want, uh, may gain, but we lose. It turns Sunday into the day we catch up on the stuff we are too lazy or disorganized to do on Saturday. It also turns Sunday into a day to ramp up for work or school on Monday. It hollows out not only Sunday, but our whole week. Because it marginalized God 
and the church and sermons and all of the vital things that happen in our life. Only when we make the vital things also central things. If we accept the world concept of a weekend, we inevitably end up fitting God in rather than centering practical reality of our every week around him. We trivialize him, even as we allow secondary things to hijack the sacred place of a centrality. We live a soul-exhausted life, and then we wonder why God isn't more real to us, why church isn't working for us, why we are grumpy, and so forth. Ray, Pastor Ray, Oatland correctly diagnosed the problem of many American Christians. We take a Sunday simply as second Saturday. You know, for us, many times, rest means being lazy. Instead of resting in the worship of God, we rest on Netflix, NFL, NBA, college basketball games, YouTube, K-drama, etc. You know, our casual attitude and expectation of worship causes a spiritual fatigue in our soul. And the sad thing about that is this, our casual attitude to Sunday worship. By the way, I'm not saying that Netflix and all those things are, you know, bad. I mean, you can watch it. But what I'm asking is that when you come to Sunday worship, you have to prepare your heart. You have to really know why you came to worship God. For me, Sunday worship is not my uh, uh, work time or job time. I'm not doing because I'm coming to Sunday worship because I'm a pastor. I'm desperate for Sunday worship. I really thank God for our worship team. You know, uh, prayerfully selecting song and practicing, you know. Do you know they meet during the weekend practice hours? You know, just for, you know, the couple songs that we, I mean, three or four songs that we see. I really appreciate their, 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 their preparation of worship because every song that I sing, I ask Holy Spirit, make each word alive in my heart. If that song doesn't come alive in my heart, if my heart is not touched by the Spirit of God and that binds my heart to the Word of God, I'm a, just an awful sinner just like you. you know? I'm actually doubly awful because I'm supposed to be pastor. You know, doing a God's work with the joy of God is a double drag. I'm desperate for Sunday worship. But oftentimes, we have this a casual attitude about Sunday worship. You know, once again, I feel so sad because we are not late at our work, our schools, our date, our children's even extracurricular activities. But many of us are late at the church. I'm picking up the bones on those of you who came late. I'm telling you, this kind of casual attitude, guess who is picking up? Our children. You know, our children director and some teachers told me that, Pastor, you know, our kids, they do things that they don't, in our Sunday school, that that they don't do at school. They chat, you know, while I'm teaching, they're talking to each other. They're talking back. They're running in the, in the aisle. They don't do that in school, but in the only in the, when they're in the church. I think they pick from parents. 
This is a casual, unserious attitude toward the worship offends the Holy Spirit in us. Because he wants to draw us closer to Christ. But our casual, unserious, this ritualistic attitude preempts our spiritual you know, reception of the God's grace. So I pray today is the last day of a casual Sabbath for many of us. And all of us take a God's rhythm of a Sabbath as a foretaste of a paradise in our life. Amen? All right, amen is very, very, amen? Everybody saying amen? Did you say amen? Let me hear amen. amen. Can you say louder? Amen. Are you going to come to church before 1 o'clock? Oh, you, some of you didn't say. Are you going to come to the church before 1 o'clock? You know, back in college, my first two years, my school was uh, 60 miles away from my home church in downtown Los Angeles. It was a Riverside. And I was a foreign student, you know, barely understanding English, and I have longer hours to study than my friends. But Sunday worship was so important to me, and it was so, I was so blessed by our Sunday, you know, you know all the hymns and so forth. You know, I worked doubly hard on Saturday morning to, you know, midnight so that I can come to church on Sunday. They saved me. They saved my two, first two years of my you know, college life. And uh, I actually had a great grade. You know? And the uh, funny thing is that uh, I have all the uh, sermon notes really dating in the, you know, on the, those days. And the pastor of my home church during the time was associate pastor because my main pastor was doing a ministry in South America. And that pastor, the associate pastor, is a borderline heretic. A lot of these things said is problematic. But at the time, do you know, I was so blessed by that. I was so blessed by that. When our heart is desperate for grace of God, you know, that's how God's grace comes. Now, Luke does not tell us that any response of the Pharisees to Jesus' reflective question or self-revelation. But I bet they were stunned and speechless and sullen. They were sour about Jesus' radical true revelation of Sabbath. So look at the second clash between uh, Jesus and Pharisees on Sabbath, particularly on the issue of a healing. As we just read, the man with the shriveled hand, I suspect was a kind of decoy or bait planted by the Jewish leaders to trap Jesus. So let's look at the story. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And Pharisees' teachers of law were looking for reason to accuse Jesus, so he, they watched him closely to see if he could heal on Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? He looked around at them all, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. When Jesus saw the man who had a shriveled right hand, Jesus did not hesitate to help him. 
For Jesus, Sabbath means not only resting in God, but restoring others with the love of God. Sabbath and serving others go together because both has to do with the loving and sharing joy of God. You know, when you rest in God's love or Christ's love, you want to reach out to others who don't know God and they want to really recreate God's joy in their life. And that's why, you know, we call Sunday worship what? Service. We call worship service because worship and service go together. As a Lord of Sabbath, Jesus, you know, gave a final interpretation about the Sabbath law in Mark 2, 23. There, Jesus set the priority of a Sabbath straight for all of us. Jesus said, Sabbath was not made for men. Uh, Sabbath was made for men, not men for the Sabbath. Simply put, Jesus said, it's not the rules come first. It is the people come first. People come first. In this second story, Jesus shows us how to create and celebrate Sabbath for men with a, you know, with a shriveled hand. You know, two Jewish leaders, Pharisees, this man's shriveled hand was not a life-threatening medical case. His healing was not urgent. But to, Jew, to Jesus, restoring right hand, the main hand of man, was so urgent. What did Jesus call it? Saving life. Is it right, lawful to save life or destroy life? Here, Jesus was talking about saving his dignity and the mental health. You know, here Jesus didn't, didn't say about the doing good versus doing nothing. Jesus saying doing good versus doing evil. Jesus said failure to do the good in the case of someone needy like this man is in fact is to do evil. I think perhaps this led later James, his half-brother, to say, if anyone who knows, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, what did James say? It is a neglect. It is a mistake. It is oversight. What did James say? It is sin. If you know good to do it and you don't do it, Bible call it sin. So here we got the third point about Sabbath. Sabbath, true rest in Christ produces good work. Sabbath is not only personal and individual, but also critically communal and relational. This is where worship is a critical. You know, serving God and other people without worship is a dangerous and draining. I don't want anybody to serve, you know, in our church ministry without the proper worship. Because I've been there serving others without, you know, worship and spiritual nourishment and the joy in my heart. That is a dangerous, that is a dangerous, and no one is good enough. You know, we are, we are all selfish. Sooner or later, we become, a, we become, we explode. And worship without serving also is a problematic because so selfish and sentimental, nothing but a self-serving. Now, if you look at the God's commandment for the Sabbath law, you know, that the, what is that, keep, keep the Sabbath holy in Ten Commandments, that is the fourth commandment, right? So if you look at the uh, God's commandment, the Sabbath in Ten Commandments, it's right at the middle. Because the first three commandments is our relationship to God, right? You shall not have no other God before me. You shall not make no idols. And you shall not take the name of God in vain, right? 
and then keep the Sabbath holy. And then rest of the sixth commandment is all about our, you know, proper things to do with other people. Honor your parents, do not murder, do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not, you know, bear false witness and do not covet. As a fourth commandment, Sabbath, call of Sabbath, connect our relationship with God and relationship with other people. This is why worship is critical. And the commandment of a Sabbath is, if you notice, the only one in Ten Commandments which is a non-moral, purely ceremonial, while the other nine commandments are the moral and spiritual absolute. You know, Sabbath is sort of a ceremonial thing, but it's a critical because it's a critical link to connect God and people in our hearts and our life. You know, Sabbath foremost reminds us us of God's love for us. That how much God loves us. How much God loves us. And recharges us with His joy toward our family and friends and VIPs. I believe the Sabbath is a balancing act of God. Balancing grace of God for our life. With this grace, let us make our Sunday worship Every Sunday worship 2022, balance the joy and service, and let us taste the paradise in Christ together every Sunday. Amen? All right. You coming before 1 o'clock? I count all of you. I'm going to register all. Anyway. Seriously. Yeah, Sometimes you have, you have to come late. That's what I'm just saying. Sometimes. Not every Sunday. Not every Sunday. I'm standing there. I'm tempted to shut the door at, you know, 110 and those latecomers go home. But some pastor in Houston already did it, and I don't want to follow his footsteps, so don't make me. All right, let's pray together.